for a future where people could stream video to their homes and consume entertainment that way was not appealing as a transformation to, needless to say, everybody at Blockbuster. But in fact, there were many people in the management of Blockbuster that really resisted that. Every business is unique. But the ups and downs we experience as we launch and run our businesses are pretty similar. We're Harmon Brothers, the team behind Pooping Unicorns and other weird but successful video ads you've probably seen. We help businesses grow through unforgettable video marketing, and we're no stranger to tricky situations. In fact, we embrace them. The goal of this podcast is to show how your crappy circumstances could be the golden opportunity that leads to your next success. You're listening to Poop to Gold. Welcome back to From Poop to Gold. I'm Benton Crane, your co-host and the CEO of Harmon Brothers. Today, I have on the show with me, Howard Tierski. Welcome to the show, Howard. Oh, thanks, happy to be here. Now, Howard is the CEO of From, which is a digital transformation agency that helps brands deliver elegant and smooth experiences to their customers. He started the company back in 2007, right after deciding to leave his job at Capgemini. Now, From helps clients with all aspects of digital transformation, business development, VR, and next-gen systems. Tell us what all that means, Howard. Well, the world is changing. It has been changing probably forever, but particularly in the last 10 or 15 years. It's been changing at a rapid pace, and digital has been the primary driver of that change. And so for any business, that means that among other groups, their customers' needs and expectations have changed very dramatically. Their competitors, in many cases, are offering elegant digital solutions to their customers, and they have two choices. They can either transform to meet the needs of today's customers or go the way of Toys R Us, Sports Authority, you know, and so many other brands, which sadly just weren't able to transform to continue to be relevant in the future the way they had in the past. And so our work is working with large brands, many awesome, fantastic brands that are on an ongoing transformation journey, but our role is to help them get there faster and better and uh, you know, be able to see more of a business return. And ultimately, the way at least I look at our work, it's really about generating customer love. How do you be a brand that customers love in this day and age? And it's not the only component, but being providing an awesome and elegant digital experience is, is a key cornerstone component. Got it. So there are a lot of digital first companies out there, but your specialty is in taking the companies that are not digital first, but are, you know, brick and mortar, or I don't know what other categories there are outside of brick and mortar, but, but they're businesses that need to make that journey into becoming a digital business. Is that accurate? Yeah. That's right. We call them great legacy companies. And while we do have clients like Amazon, Facebook, Spotify, we do sometimes work with those types of clients. You're absolutely right that the, the bulk of our business is working with great brands who are not born in a digital age, but actually have a heritage which started long before. And you know, there was a time when it looked like all the success, all the riches of the digital age were being, uh, you know, were being harvested by the Facebooks, Netflix, Uber, Airbnb, Google, et cetera. And the traditional great legacy companies were left out in the cold. But that's not true today. And while there are a great many of large legacy companies that are still struggling to transform, there's no question. I mean, the number two e-commerce company in the United States today is Walmart. Costco is, I think, number four. Kroger is one of the top five. So while, yes, you know, and, and, and you can look, HBO is one of the big leaders 
in delivering, you know, streaming digital content. So it's not only, you know, the YouTubes and the Netflixes that are taking over media. It's challenging. And again, there are many that haven't made it. But I think for any company that is trying to make that transformation, there are now many role models to look to and say it absolutely can be done. What about the legacy mom and pop shops who are also trying to make that digital transformation? Is, is that something that you guys, do you serve those types of businesses as well? Or are you focused on the bigger ones? Support for those companies mainly comes through my book and through content from a consulting perspective. We are kind of, we've tuned our company to work with large enterprises. However, I was really excited. I, of course, run a relatively small business. We have about 100 people. So I'm, you could argue, uh, you know, an entrepreneur and small business person myself, but it's not the primary market that we target with our services. However, um, you know, I came out with a book recently, um, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance which takes the learnings that I've had of 25 years of working with primarily large enterprises and distills it into a process for digital transformation. And I've been really excited to hear from so many small and medium businesses that they got the book and that they're using the principles in the book very often on their own without professional outside services to drive some aspects of their transformation journey. So uh, apparently many of the same principles either are directly applicable or at least people have figured out how to adapt them, adjust them slightly if need be to meet the needs of the small and medium business environment. That's awesome. Did your business boom during the pandemic when everyone was forced to go digital? It has boomed in the latter half of the pandemic. I think that what we saw was when the pandemic first started, many of our clients just started cutting back. And uh, for example, our largest client at the time was the Avis Budget Group, where we do their apps and websites and things like that. And so as you can imagine, the tra travel was decimated. And so yeah, got, companies yeah. like that what could they do, right? Their revenue was massively reduced. So for the first half of the pandemic, we definitely saw a contraction. But what we saw was that as it became clear that it was going to take A, a long time, and B, that the key to success really was in digital, then we saw this sort of, it was like one of those bungee cords, like, and then the other, and now, um, yes, there's no question that the work that we do, even though many companies realized it was important, it's only been catapulted that much further in terms of importance by the, the the accelerated digital transformation of companies customers as a result of covid you you may or may not know the answer to this question given that you know avis is one of your one of your clients i hear there are incredible shortages in the rental car industry right now where it's really hard just to come by a, a rental car what what is driving that do you do you happen to know yeah, I do know. Essentially, it's the lack of cars. Not only is there a, a, a difficulty in getting a rental car, the prices of cars, if you want to buy a car now, used car, new car, those prices have gone up because, of course, demand plummeted during coronavirus when we we're all staying home and not using our car at the, at the worst of coronavirus. But then now things have improved substantially. People want to rent cars. They want to travel. Many of these things are they want to buy cars. These things are coming back. But the supply chains were dr drastically disrupted by everything that happened as a result of COVID. And so many of the parts, not all, but key parts, for example, you've probably heard about the, the, the problems with getting um, semiconductors and you yeah. know, computer chips, right? So, this, so cars need those too, not just iPhones and computers and things like that. So you can have 90% of the parts of a car. If you don't have the chips that go in the computer that run the car, you have an unfinished right. car. Yeah. So, so the, the, the problem with just getting cars and then, you know, car companies, the way they operate, the rental car companies, they, they only keep cars for a limited period of time. So they generally buy new cars. They, they provide them as rental cars for a couple of years. 
And then they sell them as used cars and buy new cars so that when you rent cars, you always have a pretty new car. And so what happened during the pandemic is a lot of rental cars companies didn't buy as many cars because they didn't have much business, but they were, of course, still selling cars and as they would normally anyway, because they sell the older cars. So they, that reduced the number of cars. And then when business came back, now they want more cars, but they're hard to come by because of these uh, limitations of supplies. And that's really what's happened in supply and demand, but the prices shoot up. Yeah. So they shrunk their inventory. And now that the demand's back, they can't re-expand their inventory. Makes At least sense. not as quickly as, as needed. I mean, sure, it will eventually rectify itself. But you know what? Thank God in a way, because these companies across the whole travel sector have suffered so much through coronavirus and government assistance was not nearly, nearly enough to, to you know, and frankly, rental car, I mean, airlines received a lot more assistance than rental cars, because I think the government viewed airlines as sort of essential, whereas rental cars, I don't think they viewed as being as essential to our functioning economy. And so the consequence is that, but many parts of the travel industry were really hard hit by coronavirus. So if they're able to charge a little more for rental car now, I say, God bless, I'm happy to pay. Yeah, for sure. All right, Howard, take us through your journey. How did you end up where you're at today? And specifically, we, we want to hear about your poop to gold journey. We, we want to hear about one of those moments where, where things got pretty bleak. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, I have to say I've been very blessed in my life. I I don't have a moment of my life where I was like, you know, lying in the gutter, ants crawling all over me, you know, but, but, you know, when I first started doing this type of work, I I definitely had some challenges. And there's one story that I talk about in my book where this is back in probably, I don't know, this is maybe 15 years ago or something like that. I was brought in as a sort of a high-priced consultant to Blockbuster to help them develop the vision of the future of streamed entertainment to the home as, you know, potentially the future of blockbusters. I, you know, I see you smiling. I I don't think it would be a spoiler alert to say that I was unsuccessful in my attempt to help blockbuster. What was it? Was it just too little too late or, or did they not fully embrace what they needed to do? What, what happened? It was the second one. It was not too late. It was not too late. At the time that I was there, Netflix was much smaller than Blockbuster. Blockbuster was perhaps a little past their peak. Problems were evident, but they still had a store on every corner. This was still a massive, massive business. And no, the the but the embracing was really the thing. You know, that we we worked with, by the way, super smart people at Blockbuster. Blockbuster was not a company that was just cluelessly going along thinking, you know, nothing was going to change. That's why they were investing and bringing people in and creating a vision and moving to the future. But the problem is companies don't think with a single mind. So there are people there who are investing in R&D and thinking about the future. But what, what happened in our case, you know, just to be you know, very like the simple version of the story is, you know, pitching a vision for a future where people could stream video to their homes and consume entertainment that way uh, was not appealing as a transformation to, needless to say, everybody at Blockbuster. But in fact, there are many people in the management of Blockbuster that really resisted that. And, um, you know, when I would be sometimes in meetings and and hear some of this resistance, like, for example, one of the number one, sometimes we got this sort of sort of attitude, like when we proposed this, we pitched this idea, they would say, well, we don't seem to understand their business. You know, for example, they have a lot of real estate, like they have leases, you know, what about that? And then another thing that it would be pointed out to us is that the margin on DVD rentals at the time had been really constrained because the the studios had really negotiated a big cut 
of the video rentals for like big hot new releases, which made up a big part of the revenue. But where Blockbuster was really making a lot of money, and by the way, at that point, the late fees had been eliminated largely. Blockbuster realized that that was a big point of pain. You might probably remember that time. So where were they making a lot of the money? Candy. Candy. And those microwavable popcorn buckets, right? Those, the margin on that was crazy. So you'd get a, a, you'd rent two DVDs for $8 and Blockbuster might keep a dollar. But then you'd buy a bag of Swedish fish for $3.50 and Blockbuster would keep like $3.20. You know, like, so that's where the money was. And people would say, you can't stream candy. So, you know, I guess this isn't going to work, right? And, you know, those are all like valid points. But what I think it really comes down to is when you have people running a company who are... They see the way the company is at the moment as kind of part of their identity. And when you have, in this case, you know, people who are retail store people, that's like their 20 years at JCPenney. And then I came to Blockbuster, you know. Or it's whatever. in the like, DNA. Like, yeah. And it's their, what they perceive to be their value. So when you come and paint a picture of a future where the thing they know and love is not as big a part of the company, that is not necessarily something they can easily get on board with, even if you have the best argument of why it's right for the company, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, yes, it's very difficult sometimes to get the leaders of an organization to sign on to a transformation if the transformation really feels like it changes fundamentally what the company is. And yet, could anyone really argue that there was a way for Blockbuster to succeed that still involved renting DVDs from a store on a, in your neighborhood? I mean when you could just stream the content to your home. I mean, I don't think there was a path to success. I don't think any TV commercial, you know, this was one, I don't know if you remember the, the guinea pig commercials. No, that doesn't ring a bell. Oh. They hired an expensive advertising agency and they created awesome 3D animated, like realistic commercials with these guinea pigs that were always renting videos, you know. They redesigned the stores, they improved the lighting, they changed the, the racks, the layouts, you know. But like, just all of that, it's just not when the world is changing over here, there's just, I don't think there was a path. So, so, so that was kind of my poop moment in a way, because I really was super uh, thrilled to be there. It was a huge brand excited about the opportunity and really it, it was a giant professional failure um, to fa not be able to really do what needed to be done at that company at that point in time. And so that it's always easy to look back, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and now we all look back and we chuckle and we, you know, we laugh at how short-sighted they were and how could they not see it, you know, that that type of thing. But in the moment, I think it's important to empathize with how hard organizational change can be, especially when you're talking about huge organizations, thousands of locations, billions in revenue, getting that type of organization to to shift is a massive, massive undertaking. It can be very, very hard. And so I want to ask, I want to ask you a question regarding that level of change. I, I have this theory that decisions by committee can sometimes be really, really good. Like, for instance, lawmaking. We want our laws to be made by groups of people, not by an individual, right? We, we, we don't like dictatorships. But when it comes to catching the vision of a changing market and, and needing to 
you know, make an organizational shift like that, it's extremely difficult for committees to be able to see that change coming and, and to be able to react to it. And so my theory is that organizations that have a very strong CEO who's empowered are the ones who can make those changes versus organizations that make decisions by committee, they're less equipped to, to make those changes. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and whether or not Blockbuster was a decision by committee type organization. Hmm. Well, I would say this. I think that in order to drive transformational change at large organizations, you need to bring a lot of people along for the ride. And so you cannot succeed by, and I'm not saying necessarily that this is what you're saying, but you cannot succeed by simply saying, if I have a CEO who's powerful enough, <clears throat> they'll just do it by fiat. I don't think that usually works. And I think the, the organizations you see that have a strong, but, but at the same time, it's very helpful. And I agree with this part of what you said to have a strong leader, because for example, some, some CEOs, even if they believe in a vision for change, if that vision requires investment today that won't pay off for a few years, they may not have the, the flexibility from their board to, mm -hmm. to make those kinds of investments because there's people saying, well, what's that going to do for this quarter's stock market performance? And if it's not a positive story, some investors are thinking, well, I'm going to be out of this stock in 12 months anyway. So what do I care where your company is? You know, most investors yeah. aren't, they don't have the goal of the long-term success of the company. And frankly, many CEOs don't either because they're thinking, well, what's my average tenure? How long am I going to be the CEO here anyway? My bonus is tied to performance over the next 18 months. So part of the challenge we have in kind of corporate America today is not everyone is motivated. In fact, many people are not motivated to focus on the long-term success of a company. I think that, um, what you, when you have leaders, though, who are not only powerful so that they can hold off those forces which may be trying to avoid, prevent the change, to block the change, but also who are inspiring mm -hmm. and have a vision, because I do agree that having somebody who's a visionary or a few people that are visionaries is very helpful, but they need to be persuasive visionaries, not just visionaries with power, but they need to be, because the, the implementation of the transformation is inevitably a team effort. And sometimes the teams need to be thousands of people, all of your associates in your stores, you know, we're talking about large companies. And even if you're talking about a more medium-sized company, if you only have 200 employees, you, you still have to bring those people along, maybe not 100% of them, but you need to persuade them that this is going to be great. This is going to be in their interest. And so I think that, uh, yes, the visionary can be helpful, but it has to be paired with somebody, a, a methods and committees. When we say committee, it does sound very bureaucratic. But for example, we do a lot of workshops. I have, we built a facility in Midtown Manhattan, which is a 6,000 square foot workshop space, which is designed to bring teams together in an inspiring environment for usually a few days and move them through a process where people can feel ownership and can brainstorm and ideate and feel like they're a part of solving a problem. And so if you're the visionary at a company and you bring the top 50 people together for three days and you cook up a solution together, and then each of those people goes back and works with their teams to cook up the next level of ideation around how we implement that solution. Now you're starting to get a lot of people who really feel ownership. And I think you need something like that to cascade that feeling of ownership uh, and hopefully it's not, it doesn't feel like committees, but what it does feel like is collaboration. Yeah, that, 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 may, that makes perfect sense. So it, tie, tie that back to, to Blockbuster, like having a front row seat and seeing how decisions were made or in this case, you know, kicked down the road and not made 
Um, what would be your assessment of why that happened? I think that um, in most companies, you have distributed power. It may look like, well, the CEO, doesn't he have ultimate authority? And in a sense, yes, but in a sense, no. There's people above him, board of directors, and there's people below him that are also influential with the board of directors and who also have their own teams. And so that CEO needs to bring these people along and they need to bring these people along. So a CEO has to be more of a persuader than you'd imagine. Now, I did not always have a front row seat in Blockbuster because while I was there helping create vision, I wasn't in all their closed door meetings. I was in some, I heard some points of view, and then sometimes they had the meeting. So I don't know all the politics, but there were a couple of CEOs during the time that I was at Blockbuster. There was a turnover at one point. But, um, you know, I think that, uh, I think that had the right person demanded this, it probably could have gone farther. I don't really know, to be honest, but I think part of the problem was that there were multiple powerful people for whom this was not something they wanted to see scaled. You know, it's one thing to agree that, yeah, we should check that out. We should do research. You know, if you sound like you're the person who's uh, like against any progress, then that's not a winning political position to take, you know? But it's like, it's kind of like when one party in Congress opposes the bill, but they say, oh, we're all in favor of trying to help people, just not the way this bill helps people, you know? But if no bill gets passed, then nobody gets helped. And so there's an element of like, oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you guys did this project. Your ideas are so great. You know, we're not going to fund the next step, but like, I'm really glad we did this. This was really inspiring and illuminating. It's like, mm. and I think that it, so there's different ways that people could object, but I think in the end, and sometimes, by the way, some of these objections are not totally fictitious. You know, the candy thing, the margin issues, the real estate leases. I mean, these are not, these are not false. It's just a question of like, they're kind of a pretense in the end, if the need is, is large enough. So I think that uh, uh, in the end, I think that it's a, it's a balance. It's a balance. Yeah. You know, someone who has enough power and persuasion can help drag things along, but you also have to really, you have to bring the, the you have to bring a lot of people with you to, to drive large scale transformation. All right. Let's tie this back to you. So you, you had that professional failure and, and I imagine that feels like a pretty big black eye. How do you rebound from that? How do you, how do you go forward after that? Well, you know, it wasn't too long after that, uh, that I left. This is that situation was when I was with Capgemini. And it wasn't too long after that, that I left Capgemini and started my own company. And, uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates says success is a lousy teacher. And uh, certainly the opposite is true, right? Failure is a fantastic teacher. And so uh, I certainly learned a lot from my experiences there and not just there, but other places where I was trying to drive transformation. And while they may not have been as spectacular of a success, uh, sorry, as spectacular of a failure, they were not always successful. I was involved in, you know, when you're a consultant, sometimes you get brought in to create strategies and sometimes those strategies never go anywhere and you're left scratching your head. Like they paid the bill, but like, where's the transformation? So when I started my, my own company, I said, you know, I, what, what I want to be known for is not just doing projects that lead nowhere, but really driving change within organizations. That's one of the reasons why we built out our workshop facility. We said, we really, when, when, when a client comes to us and says, they want us to help do something like what we did at Blockbuster, I need to be smarter. And I need to say, okay, I'm not just going to come up with the right answer for them because the right answer gets, only gets you 20% of the way there. In fact, it's better to have a slightly wrong answer. If you can get people on board, you can fix the answer later. So I really built into the whole approach that we took to these types of projects, the question of change management, organizational buy-in, collaborative visioning. And that's really 
very much how I built my own company. And we've worked with many, many, many clients and had a much better track record than I had in the early days uh, at driving change, whether it was launching the new AAA uh, roadside assistance app, or we're working with ADP right now, working on their payroll systems and improving the tools that small and medium businesses use to pay their employees, calculate you know taxes and all these types of things. Working with JP Morgan Chase on their commercial banking applications, working with um, Universal Studios theme parks on their web ticketing applications, and all these things. I'm always thinking about the fact that you know success means this thing's got to get out and have its impact in the market, which means there's a portion of it that we have to think about that's politics, persuasion, and really understanding what's it going to take to bring everyone along. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. I I also started my career in consulting at Deloitte. And I remember, uh, you know, one of our calling cards, you know, a couple of the big names in, in consulting are, are McKinsey and Bain. And, and as a general rule, they're not known for their implementation. They're known for their, you know, their, their strategy and their guidance. And so at, at Deloitte, that was sometimes a calling card, like, hey, you know, we can take you beyond just the the strategy and the guidance we can help you implement and get this thing to the finish line so yeah it's that's very that's been a a component for us as well you know and whenever i've I've, I've, many times actually uh i've been with some executive somewhere and they've said you know mckinsey bain or bcg or somebody like that has done this you know the ceo plays played golf with them and he hired them and they did this million dollar project or whatnot and the outcome of it is this hundred slide powerpoint deck you know, and sometimes they'll say to me, would you like to read the hundred slide, power, the million dollar PowerPoint deck? And of course, I'm always like, hell yeah, I want to read the million dollar PowerPoint deck. And I always have the same reaction. I've done this many, many times in many different companies. And every time I look and I look at the million dollar PowerPoint deck and I always have the same response, which is it's great. It's great for a million dollars. Those guys will give you fantastic thinking, very, very well thought through. The problem is that then people there are left with this deck and they don't know what to do next. Just as you say, you know, it's light. So of course we do help create the original strategies very often too, but when we come in, we're, we're there to help move forward from wherever the company is at. And so we never want to start by reinventing the wheel, but understand what's come before, what good thinking has already been done and what's stopping them from taking great ideas and putting them into action. And sometimes it's budget, sometimes it's alignment, Sometimes it's just not knowing what to do next. Sometimes it's the overwhelm, you know, this deck outlines 25 things to do. And it just feels like we're trying to run a business here day to day. How are we supposed to drive this transformation? That's why they need folks like us to come in and say, okay, here's how you're going to drive this transformation. And obviously it's not by taking everybody who runs your operation day to day and putting them on a transformation. So there's no one to answer the phones. Clearly you need to think about how to do that in parallel. Yep. Well, Howard, it has been fun getting to know you and having you share your experience and expertise with us. Where can our listeners stay in touch with you? Sure. Well, if you're interested in learning more about my book, you can go to winningdigitalcustomers.com where you can actually download uh, the first chapter for free if you like, you want to check that out. And you can obviously also find the book wherever you like to buy books. And I'm on LinkedIn and you can look me up there and I do live casts twice a week, which are also on YouTube and Facebook and other places. But I kind of think of LinkedIn as my home. And if you want to learn more about my consulting firm from the Digital Transformation Agency, you can go to from.digital. Awesome. Okay, final piece of advice for our listeners. So we're approaching mid-2021. For our entrepreneur listeners who are, who are struggling and facing the realities of 
you know, this post-pandemic economy and everything else that comes along with it, what one piece of advice would you give those entrepreneurs? Well, I can understand how the last year and a half have been a struggle for sure. But the realities of the post-pandemic world are fantastic. It's fantastic. I mean, the world is coming back. The economy is roaring back. There's all kinds of financing available, you know, labor. I mean, yes, of course, in any market, we have some challenges. But I would say you need to make sure, of course, you're plugged in to what your customers need now because their needs have changed. And by the way, in my book, I talk a lot about techniques for doing customer research and making sure you have your finger on the pulse of what your customer needs. But this is going to be a fantastic next couple of years. I mean, I'm no like economic expert, but I mean, the winds are highly favorable to entrepreneurial activity. So I would say take advantage of the situation that we're in right now, because we are in a massive growth spurt just at the beginning of it. And so, you know, you're in the right place at the right time. Awesome. Thanks again, Howard. We appreciate you being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. For our listeners, make sure to like, share, and subscribe. We'll see you on the next one. Have you ever wanted Harmon Brothers help in your own business? We'll take a look at your marketing efforts and tell you where you can level up. We have the strategies. We have the expertise. We can help you get there. All you have to do is go to harmanbrothers.com forward slash audit. Once again, that's harmanbrothers.com forward slash audit.